Tom is continuing his series through the book of Jeremiah. I'll be reading just two verses today from chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Heavenly Father, your word is very clear that wise living is to know you, to fear you, and to boast only in you. May you draw us close to you that we may know you very well. In Jesus' name. Even though we only read those two verses, our our whole passage This morning is chapter 8, verse 4, to chapter 9, verse 26. Uh, That would have taken quite a while to read. We're going to cover a lot of it, but it's not a, this won't be a verse by verse exposition. This is, this is more on, uh, about the theme that really pervades those two chapters. I want you for a moment to imagine yourself as a uh, soldier in a cavalry regiment. And I'm talking old school horse mounted cavalry. One morning, your regiment takes up position to prepare for a critical assault against an enemy post. And your regimental commander tells you to get off of your horse and to walk stealthily toward the enemy post and to surveil that post and then come back and report what you see. So you, you, you follow that command and you head carefully toward the enemy location. And when, uh, when you get there, When you get close enough to see what's going on, you realize that the enemy has dug a long and deep trench about 200 feet ahead of their position, and they've covered that trench over with brush. So it's very clear that if if your cavalry regiment does a direct assault against that encampment, it's going to result in a lot of lamed horses and a lot of uh, dead soldiers in short order. And so you realize you've got a critical mission to get back to your regiment and you start heading back and as you're on your way back you see an object coming towards you at breakneck pace and you're not sure what it is and you keep watching and and then you realize it's a horse and then as it gets a little closer you realize it's your horse and he's heading straight toward the enemy camp like a beeline straight toward the enemy camp and so what do you do well of course you you start waving your hands furiously and flag, trying to flag him down and get his attention. And at, at a couple of points, you notice that he actually looks at you and he gets eye contact with you, but it doesn't, it doesn't alter his course at all. He continues to run with steadfast fury toward that enemy camp. You're the one who broke him. You're the one who trained him. You're the one who's been caring for him for the last two years. But he acts as if he doesn't even know who you are. And he just continues on that path toward mortal danger. Our passage this morning includes an allusion to a horse running 
steadfastly toward a battle, unable to be moved from his course. And in this passage, God likens his own people, Judah, to that horse, a people who pay no attention to the gracious and repeated warnings from the one who redeemed them for himself and taught them everything that they had ever known of wisdom and truth and blessedness. As our passage begins in chapter 8, verse 4, God instructs Jeremiah to lay out before Judah their fatal foolishness. He starts by naming a few things in his creation that possess more wisdom than Judah did. And the first thing that possesses more wisdom than Judah did is all the rest of mankind, according to, to what God says here. He says, do men fall and not get up again? Does one turn away and not return? If you're running a marathon and you slip and fall, but you haven't actually injured yourself, do you just sit there and watch all the, all the other runners go by? If something distracts you from something that's critically important, do you just stay distracted or do you return your attention to that which is important? The wise man gets up from the fall and he continues the race. The wise man turns his attention back to that which is important. But God says of his own people, verse 5, Why then has this people, Jerusalem, turned away in continual, steadfast, unrelenting apostasy? He says they hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. I have listened and heard they have spoken what is not right. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Everyone turned to his own course, his own way, like a horse charging into the battle. And then in verse 7, God contrasts Judah's steadfast refusal to turn back to him with the behavior of four kinds of birds that were well known in Palestine. He says, even the stork in the sky knows her seasons. And the turtle dove and the swift and the, and the thrush observe the time of their migration. But my people do not know the ordinance of the Lord. Instead of wisely submitting to God's gracious design and intention as even the birds of the sky do, and thus experiencing His faithful provision and blessing, Judah had turned away from God in steadfast apostasy. Let me ask you a question. Is it wise or is it, is it foolish to stubbornly persist in the course of action when you've been very clearly warned that it will result in curse for you instead of blessing? That's what Judah was doing when Jeremiah declared to them these words from their own Creator and Redeemer. Judah held fast to deceit and refused to return even though God had clearly warned them over and over again through His faithful prophets just as He was now warning them through His faithful prophet Jeremiah. In verses 8 and 9, God says to Judah, how can you say we are wise? And the law of the Lord is with us, but behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it, has made the law of the Lord into a lie. 
The wise men are put to shame. They are dismayed and caught. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. And what kind of wisdom do they have? The answer is they have no wisdom at all. None at all. Why? Because they have rejected the word of the Lord. The scribes, the very men who were charged with guarding and meticulously preserving the word of God, had made that very word, that gracious instruction, into a lie. How had they managed to do that? You get a big clue if you see what had happened to the scribes by the time of Jesus. They had become far busier with the task of recording what one rabbi said about what another rabbi said about what another rabbi said about the Word of God than they had concerned themselves at all with the Word of God itself. In fact, during the intertestamental period, about 400 years between the the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, massive quantities of documentation were created by the scribes recording nothing essentially more than the, than the wildly varied opinions of respected men. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus called the so-called Jewish experts in the law. He spoke to them and he said, Woe to you, lawyers, for you, you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves and those who were entering in, you hindered. And then the passage says, when Jesus left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and they were following Him and they were questioning Him closely on many subjects, plotting against Him to catch Him in something that He might say. Beloved, those who wrongly handle the Word of God are the most dangerous people on earth. James 3 verse 1 says, Let not many become teachers, my brethren, for as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. The path to intimate, personal, life-giving knowledge of the one true God goes straight through the Word of God. And when men who pretend to be the teachers of God's Word distort and corrupt that Word, they take away the key to the knowledge of God. Millions of people through the ages, especially the ages of the church, have been misled into all manner of falsehood because they have listened uncritically to men who claim to be speaking on God's behalf. Men who in our age have made a multi-billion dollar industry out of telling people what they want to hear instead of what God has actually said. There was one guy who recently insisted that the fundraising get ramped up so he could replace his $49 million Learjet with something better. And he claims to be a, a minister of the gospel of Christ. Beloved, you must test everything that you ever hear from any teacher or preacher or author who speaks to you concerning the living and active word of God. And that absolutely includes what you hear from me. And the way you test it, this is important, the way you test it is not apply, not by applying your logic to what that person is saying. Ken shared in our worship this morning from Jeremiah 17.9, the heart, meaning the heart of man, is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
Don't depend on your own heart to tell you what's true. The way you test it, the words of any man, is by applying God's Word to it. The same way that the Jews in Berea did in Acts chapter 17 when they took the Gospel proclamation of Paul and they tested it against the Old Testament Scriptures. And Paul did not rebuke them for doing that because that's exactly what he intended. At the beginning of that same chapter, it says that every time Paul would go into a synagogue, he would pull, he would go to the Old Testament Scriptures and he would, he would explain that, that the Christ had to die and be raised from the dead. So where, where else would they go to see if he was telling the truth? They'd go to the Scriptures he was quoting. Wisdom as God defines it, and it's the only definition that matters, is the moral skill to live in keeping with the character of God. Wisdom is the moral skill to live in keeping with the character of God. But how do men come to have wisdom? (laughs) Well, through Jeremiah, God starts by telling us how they don't. He tells us how not to have wisdom. And it's very, very simple. All you have to do to make sure that you're not wise is reject the word of God. You don't even have to, you don't even have to militantly reject it. Just don't bother really getting to know it. And then you'll be foolish instead of wise. It's guaranteed. It's guaranteed. Like that horse charging ahead into mortal danger, you will be headed steadily toward curse instead of blessing. And what you don't know will hurt you. If your wisdom comes from any source other than God's revelation of Himself, of His character and His ways and His will and His works. In other words, if your wisdom comes from any source other than the Word of God, it's fake. It's fake wisdom. It's pretended wisdom. It's not real. Guys, there is no truth proposition more foundational than this one. There is no legitimate epistemology that doesn't begin right here. And the word epistemology simply means the study of how we know what we know. There is no more fundamental truth proposition than this. I cannot know truth unless God tells me. I cannot know truth unless God tells me. Have you ever heard the assertion, all truth is God's truth? There's a little flaw in that proposition because it conflates two distinct realities, facts and truth. The fact is a proposition that's true in that it is in keeping with reality, but it's, that's not the same as truth. It is a fact that an oxygen atom has eight protons. That is in keeping with reality. But it's not truth. Because truth is about God. What God calls truth, the way God defines truth, is that truth is about God. It is everything that is in keeping with reality about the character and the works and the will and the ways of God including his relationship with his creation and especially his relationship with the pinnacle of his his creation, mankind. 
In John chapter 18, Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate replied to him, What is truth? And that was the end of that conversation. Pilate was not one who was going to ever hear the truth. He did not have ears to hear. Jesus gave us the answer to Pilate's question a chapter before that. He was walking from the upper room in Jerusalem to the Garden of Gethsemane where he would be arrested that very night, the night before his crucifixion. And as he was walking, he prayed the greatest prayer ever prayed on this earth. In verse 17 of John 17, Jesus asked his father to sanctify his people, all who would ever come to faith in him, to sanctify them in the truth. That means to make his people holy, to set them apart to God. And in the second half of that same verse, John 17, 17, Jesus said, thy word is truth. That's a comprehensive statement, beloved. God's word is truth. Jesus didn't say your word is part of the truth. He said your word is truth. Men do not come to know God by trying to know God. Men come to know God by hearing and receiving the truth that God alone has revealed. And God's Word, God's revelation of Himself to mankind is that truth. Have you ever had a conversation with someone who, who hadn't a clue what they were talking about? I'm sure you have. Most of us have. That happens every single time men talk about truth without talking about the Word of God. Here's a simple fact about you and me and every other created human being. I've already said it, but I want to say it again. I know nothing of truth unless God tells me. You might be thinking, well, Tom, you said the passage was talking about wisdom, not about truth. But there's a there's a marvelously fine line between those two things, wisdom and truth, because wisdom is the attribute that applies truth to life. Wisdom is the attribute that applies truth to life. Wisdom is that moral skill that bases decisions and actions on that which is true of the character and the ways and the will of God. If I asked you what the opposite of wisdom is, what would you say? Foolishness. This is very interesting in this passage. Even though the word wise or wisdom shows up six times in these two chapters, you know what doesn't show up? The word fool, foolish, or foolishness. And yet the whole of the two passages is about the antithesis of wisdom. Do you know what's presented as the opposite of wisdom throughout this passage? Falsehood, lies, deception. Chapter 8, verse 8, How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us, but behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. Chapter 9, verses 3 through 6, listen to how many times the word lies or deceit show up in this passage. 
They bend their tongue like the bow. Lies and not truth prevail in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil and they do not know Me, declares the Lord. Let, let everyone be on guard against his neighbor and do not trust any brother because every brother deals craftily and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer and everyone deceives his neighbor and does not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity. Your dwelling is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit, they refuse to know me, declares the Lord. In Psalm 51, verse 6, David said, Behold, God, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Wisdom and truth are two sides of the same coin. The key to wisdom is truth. The way to miss wisdom is to buy into the lies that deny truth. That ensures you will not be wise. And since the one and only source of the revelation of God to mankind, the only unadulterated milk of the Word is the Word itself, if you want to be a fool, reject or neglect the Word of God. And it's guaranteed you'll be a fool. What happens to God's people when we replace His truth with our lies? (laughs) Throughout this book and this passage, God describes a people who lie to one another and deceive one another and deprive one another for personal gain. The first thing that we see that happens when we replace the truth with lies is that we lie to each other and we treat each other horribly. And that happens because when we replace the truth with a lie, we are looking to ourselves for well-being instead of to God. And our lives become filled with anxious manipulations, with fearful efforts to protect ourselves from the fearfulness of others, and to protect ourselves at the expense of others. When we look to ourselves instead of to God for truth, our behavior toward one another becomes absolutely horrific. You can count on that. Another thing that happens when we replace the truth of God with our lies is that we grieve God and we grieve those who love God. In the middle of this two-chapter passage is a lamentation of the kind that is often found in Jeremiah's writings. In his impassioned lamentations... Jeremiah often switches between speakers. And it's not really hard to follow who is speaking if you just pay attention to what's being said. As I read Jeremiah 8, verse 18 to 9, verse 3, you're going to hear Jeremiah use a phrase, the daughter of my people, repeatedly. And I'm going to translate it a little differently. My daughter, my people, because it's, it's an apposition. The daughter that he's talking about is the people of God, and it's a term of endearment. My daughter, my people. Jeremiah says, verse 18 of chapter 8, My sorrow is beyond healing. My heart is faint within me. Behold, listen, the cry of my daughter, my people from a distant land. And then Judah speaks. Is Yahweh not in Zion? Is her king not within her? They're saying, where has God gone? And then God replies, Why have they provoked me with their graven images, with foreign idols? 
And then Judas says, harvest is past, summer is ended, and we are not saved. And then Jeremiah goes into a more lengthy lamentation expressing his own heart. He says, For the brokenness of my daughter, my people, I am broken. I mourn. Dismay has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has not the health of my daughter, my people, been restored? Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of my daughter, my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a wayfarer's lodging place that I might leave my people and go from them for all of them are adulterers and assembly of treacherous men. When God's people replace His truth with our lies, we grieve God and we grieve the faithful among us. It is, of course, senseless in every way to do things that grieve the one who has lavished His grace upon us when we didn't deserve it. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. But it's also senseless to grieve those who are walking faithfully before God. Because those are the very people who can be trusted to act on God's behalf in our lives and to actually seek our well-being. Here's something you can count on, beloved. We see it over and over in God's Word, and I've seen it in far more earthly relationships than I care to count. If you turn your face away from the truth of God to live on your own terms, the people you will treat the worst and the people that you will grieve most deeply will be the people who love you most truly. And the very reason that they're the ones who love you most truly is because they most truly love God. If you've ever spent part of your Christian life walking in rebellion against God, you know that this is true because you've done it to the people who love you most truly. Another thing that happens when we replace the truth of God with our own lies is that we expect God to let us have our way when He's promised that He won't. In chapter 8, verse 11, God says again what He said in chapter 6, verse 14, that the leaders and the teachers of Judah healed the wound of His people superficially, saying, all is well. All is well. Literally, shalom, shalom. Peace, peace. When there was no peace. And the reason there was no peace is because shalom pervasive well-being in all aspects of life is entirely dependent on relationship with God. It's the only place it comes from. Well-being is not a function of our circumstance. It is a function of our relationship and fellowship with the living God who is the source of all well-being. God will never allow His people to find well-being in things that do not profit. He loves us too much to let that happen. He will not allow us to turn away from the fountain of living waters to broken cisterns that we dig in the ground and actually find water there. He won't let that happen. Because He loves us. 
God does not promise to bless us when we choose to do life on our terms and while we're pretending to worship Him. He promises not to bless us. And so when you turn your face away from the truth of God and you try to replace that truth with something that you think is better, you can be guaranteed if you belong to Christ, your life is going to be miserable. And I've said it before, there's nothing more miserable on this earth than a miserable Christian. That's gracious. Another thing that happens, and this is tied to that one, when we replace the truth of God with our own lies is that we store up judgment for ourselves. In chapter 9, verse 10, Jeremiah said, For the mountains I will take up a weeping and a wailing, and for the pastures of the wilderness a dirge, because they are laid waste so that no one passes through. And the lowing of the cattle is not heard. Both the birds of the sky and the beasts have fled. They are gone. And then God says, I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. Does that sound like something we should take lightly? In verse 12, he says, chapter 9, verse 12, Who is the wise man that may understand this? Who is he to whom the mouth of Yahweh has spoken that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined, laid waste like a desert so that no one passes through? The Lord said, because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice, nor walked according to it, but listen, but have walked after the stubbornness of their own heart and after the Baals, as their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed them, this people, with wormwood and give them poisoned water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known. I will send the sword after them until I have annihilated them. The one true God is not a master to be trifled with. If we think that we can go on provoking Him to anger by denying his word, and replacing it with our own, we have no idea who it is with whom we have to do. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Hebrews 10.31 That's not something we should forget. Finally, the most terrible lack that we suffer when we believe ourselves more than we believe God when we believe our senses more than we believe God, when we believe our perceptions more than we believe God, when we replace the truth of God with our own pathetic lies, is that we're actually refusing to know God. Chapter 9, verse 6, Jeremiah says, your dwelling is in the midst of deceit. And then God says, through deceit, they refuse to know me. Through deceit, they refuse to know me. By choosing lies and not truth, we are cutting ourselves off from the knowledge of God. We are refusing to know God. And that means we're cutting ourselves off from real life. Because Jesus said in John 17, 3, This is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Real life is the intimate personal knowledge of God in Christ. And if we're choosing falsehood and turning away from truth and refusing to know God, we're we're turning away from life. What makes God's people 
replace the truth with our own lies. Well, Judah's problem was not that they had no way of knowing God's will or God's warnings. God had been sending them His faithful prophets ever since He redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. God's will and God's promises and God's warnings had been right in their face for dozens of generations. Their problem was that they stubbornly rejected what God had told them so that, so that they could turn away to their own course. Their catastrophic problem was the very failure that God had already so concisely revealed in chapter 2, verse 20. They said to their own Redeemer, we will not serve. We will not serve. Beloved, your answer to the following question will determine whether you embrace the truth or replace the truth. Here's the question. Who gets to tell me what to believe and how to live? Who gets to tell me what to believe and how to live? If your answer to that question is, I do, even if your answer to that question is, God and I do, a collaborative effort, you will spend the rest of your life replacing the truth with your own lies. And you will reap the whirlwind. If your answer to that question is, God and only God gets to tell me what to believe and how to live because I'm utterly incapable of knowing the answer to either of those questions unless He reveals the truth to me. That's when you become wise and that's when you enter into true blessedness. That's when you really will embrace the truth. Judah dispensed with truth in order to dispense with submission to God. The natural inclination of unredeemed man is to embrace lies precisely because those lies dispense with the nuisance of a God who demands something from His image bearers. That truth suppression takes work even for an unbeliever. That's what Romans 1.18 is talking about when it says that men suppress the truth in unrighteousness and exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the, than the Creator. That takes work. That takes work. But that passage is talking about mankind's suppression of God's revelation in nature, in the things He has made. The truth that God has revealed in nature is just enough to condemn you, but it cannot save you. But they rejected that. All of us did. How much more work does it take for God's own covenant people to whom He has graciously given His clear propositional revelation of His character, His ways, His work, His will? How much more work does it take for us to suppress that glorious truth and replace it with our own pathetic lies? The answer is it takes a lot more work. And that's what Jeremiah describes in chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. Listen to this. Listen to the work here. Everyone deceives his neighbor and does not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak to speak lies. They weary themselves. They weary themselves committing iniquity. Your dwelling is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit they refuse to know me, declares the Lord. 
they wearied themselves replacing the truth. Judah had forfeited the knowledge of God by systematically and steadfastly refusing to know God. And they had to work hard to deceive themselves into believing their own lies when all of their generations had been shown the truth. Finally, last big point here, is that knowing God is the only way to be wise and blessed. Proverbs 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. We're going to look more closely at the fear of the Lord next week when we look at at God's satire on Judah's idolatry in chapter 10. It's an amazing passage. But for now, what I want us to see is this. Wisdom and understanding, as God defines them, are rooted and grounded in the personal knowledge of God himself. Wisdom, that moral skill to live in a manner that reflects and matches up with God's character, God's ways, comes only from personally knowing God himself. And the only way for God's people to personally know God is to take His Word, His revelation of Himself into our minds and into our hearts and to humbly submit to that Word. To believe Him more than we believe ourselves. It's about replacing our way with His way instead of the other way around. We have to stop rushing headlong into our foolishness. We have to stop in our tracks and put an end to trusting in our own senses, our own logic, our own anything. We have to stop setting aside the truth that only God reveals. The truth about Him. His Word is that truth. The personal knowledge of the one true God is the only knowledge that's worthy of our boasting. There are all kinds of knowledge that we gain from studying God's creation. All that knowledge from studying God's cursed creation is very short-term. 2 Peter 3.10, Peter says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. So all of our knowledge of this present cursed creation is going to end. It's going to be worthless really soon. But beloved, here's the knowledge, here's the understanding, here's the wisdom that will remain forever. Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Do you want to live a life that honors the One who made you? The One who sent His own beloved Son to pay your eternal sin debt to Him so that He could make you His own child forever? Do you want to get on and stay on the path that is filled with real life? Do you want to have real peace and not pretended peace? Do you want to have blessed fellowship with the living God and with the redeemed people of God? 
then focus your mind and your heart and your strength and your affections on knowing and understanding and trusting and following Jesus Christ, who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature and who upholds all things by the word of his power. Then you will be wise and well. Regardless of your physical health, regardless of the size of your bank account, you will be wise and you will be well. The peace, the shalom, the well-being that you will know will be untouchable. The beauty that you will behold daily will be the beauty of God Himself. And the knowledge, the understanding that you'll bear in this world, to this world, will be eternal salvation to all who come to embrace it by the grace of God. So, brothers and sisters, let's run headlong toward Christ. The only one who is worthy of our trust, our affection, and our joyful submission. Dear Father, we, we ask this of you that you, would, that you would stop us in our tracks when we are running toward that which is false, that which cannot profit. Father, when we, when we trust our own ways and our own sensibilities, we ask that you would indeed judge us, chastise us as our perfect Heavenly Father, because that's what you do to those who are your children. You scourge every son whom you receive. In order that we may share your holiness, in order that you may produce in us the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And that's what we want, Father. That's what we want. And we know that only you can give it. Only you, Father, can make us wise and blessed. So we depend on you in the name of our marvelous Savior, Jesus Christ.